Section 65 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The World Story, Volume 15. The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 65. Life in a German Submarine. 1915. By Freiherrn von Forstner. 1. How a Submarine Works A new passenger, for the first time in a submarine, has often professed to be unaware that he was fathoms deep under water, and has been quite unconscious that the boat had been diving. Of course his astonishment indicates that he was not in the compartment where these maneuvers take place, for it is in the commander's turret that the whole apparatus is centralized for submersion, for steering to the right depth, and also for immersion. At this juncture every man must be at his post, and each one of the thirty members of the crew must feel individually responsible for the safety of the whole in the difficult and rapid manoeuvre of plunging, for the slightest mistake may endanger the security of the boat. The central control, situated in the commander's turret, is in reality the brain of the boat. When the alarm signal is heard to change the course from surface navigation to subsurface navigation, several previously designated members of the crew take their post of duty in the commander's turret. The commander himself is on duty during the whole of the expedition in time of war, and he seldom gets a chance for rest in his tiny little cabin. Day and night, if there is the slightest suspicion of the approach of the enemy, he watches on the exposed bridge on the top of the turret, for a few seconds' delay in submerging might forfeit the taking of a much-coveted prize. So he learns to do without sleep, or to catch a few brief seconds of repose by lying down in his wet clothes, and he is at once ready to respond to the alarm signal of the officer of the watch. In one bound he is once more surveying the horizon through the periscope, or mounts to the bridge to determine, with his powerful field glass, whether friend or foe is in sight. His observations must be taken in the space of a few seconds, for the enemy is also constantly on the lookout, and continual practice enables the sailor in the crow's nest to detect the slender stem of a periscope, although the hull of the boat is scarcely visible on the face of the waters. The commander must come to a prompt decision as soon as he locates the adversary's exact position. Not only may a retarded submersion spoil our plan of attack, but we are exposed to being rammed by a rapidly advancing steamer. Our haste must be all the greater if the conditions of visibility are impaired, as is often the case on the high seas, for it takes time for the U-boat to submerge completely, and during this process it is helplessly exposed to the fire of long-distance guns. Calmly, but with great decision, the commander gives the general orders to submerge. The internal combustion engines, the oil motors which, during surface navigation, are used to accelerate the speed of the boat, are immediately disconnected, as they consume too much air under seas, and electric motors are now quickly attached and set in motion. They are supplied by a large storage battery which consumes no air and forms the motive power during subsurface navigation. Of course, electricity might be employed above water but it uses up much current, which is far more expensive than oil, and would be wasted too rapidly, if not economized with care. It would be convenient to employ the same oil motor for underseas navigation, but such a machine has not yet been constructed, although various futile attempts of this kind have been made. 
with only one system of propulsion we should gain much coveted space and a much more evenly distributed weight within the same dimensions new weapons of attack could be inserted and also effective weapons of defence the inventor of such a device would earn a large reward let him who wants it try for it quickly with deft hands the outboard connections which served as exhausts for the oil motors must be closed in such a way as to resist at once the high water pressure it is well known that for every ten metres under water we oppose the pressure of one atmosphere one kilogram to the square centimetre and we must be prepared to dive to far greater depths when all these openings have been carefully closed and fastened then begins the manoeuvre of submersion the seawater is admitted into big open tanks powerful suction engines in the central control of the boat draw out the air from these tanks so as to increase the rapid inrush of the water the chief engineer notifies the captain as soon as the tanks are sufficiently filled and an even weight is established so as to steer the boat to the proper depth for attack notwithstanding the noise of the machinery large wide-open speaking tubes facilitate the delivery of orders between the commander's turret and the central and now is the moment the commander gives the order to submerge all this may sound very simple and yet there are a great many things to consider in the same manner in which an airplane is carefully balanced before taking wing into the high regions of the sky a submarine must be accurately weighed and measured before it descends into the watery depths of the ocean the briny water of the north sea weighs far more than the less salty water of the baltic sea whose western basins is composed of practically fresh water a boat floats higher in the heavily salted waters of the north sea and lies deeper and plunges farther down in the waters of the baltic the same u-boat therefore must take into its tanks a greater quantity of water ballast in the north sea to be properly weighted than when diving into the fresher waters even with small submarines of four hundred tons displacement there is the enormous difference of ten tons between one thousand and twenty-five specific weight in the intake of north sea water and one thousand specific weight of fresh water on the other hand if too much water is admitted into the tanks the submarine may plunge with great velocity deeper and deeper beyond its appointed depth and in such a case it might even happen that the whole of the boat could not withstand the overpowering pressure and would be crushed beneath the mass of water and yet again if too small a quantity of water ballast is admitted into the tanks the boat may not sink sufficiently below the surface and thus we could not obtain an invisible attack which is positively necessary for our success how much water then must we take in the answer to this question is a matter of instinct education and experience and we must also depend on the cleverly devised apparatus made for this purpose the submarine like the airplane must be always maintained at the proper level the weight of the boat varies continually during a prolonged voyage food is devoured and the diving material of the machinery is consumed the water in which the boat swims continually changes weight and the boat is imperceptibly raised or lowered in a way very difficult to ascertain the officer responsible for the flooding of the submarine must painstakingly keep its weight under control during the entire navigation the weight of a meal eaten by each man of the crew the remains of the food and the boxes in which it was contained which have been thrown overboard must be calculated 
as well as the weight of the water, and the officer employs delicate apparatus for these measurements. On the open seas, these alterations in weight do not occur very rapidly, but whenever a boat approaches the mouth of a river, then the transition from salt to fresh water happens very suddenly, and may provoke the undesirable disturbances to which we have already alluded. Also, warm and cold currents at different depths produce thermotic conditions which surprisingly change the weight of the water. Peculiar as it may appear, a submarine must be lightened to descend to a very great depth, whereas, in steering to a higher level, more water must be admitted into the tanks to prevent our emerging to the surface with too great suddenness. This demands careful attention, skill, and experience. The principal condition for the success of a submarine attack is to steer to the exact depth required. The periscope must not rise too far above water, for it might easily be observed by the enemy, but if, by clumsy steering, the top of the periscope descends below the waves, then it becomes impossible to take aim to fire the torpedo. The commander, therefore, must be able to depend on the two men who control the vertical and horizontal rudders, whom another officer constantly directs and supervises. When the boat has reached the prescribed depth, a close examination is made of all the outward leading pipes, to see if they can properly resist the water pressure. If any tiny leak has been sprung, every cup must be tightly screwed down, for it is evident it would be very undesirable if any leak should occur and increase the heaviness of the submarine. Absolute silence must prevail, so that any dripping or greater influx in the tanks can be observed. Quietly and silently the boat advances against the enemy. The only audible sounds are the purring of the electric motors and the unavoidable noise made by the manipulation of the vertical and horizontal rudders. Alert and speechless, every man on board awaits a sign from the commander who is watching in the turret. But some time may elapse now that the periscope is lowered and nearly on the level of the waters, before the adversary becomes visible again. The ship may have changed her course and may have taken an opposite direction to the one she was following at the moment we submerged. In that case she would be out of reach and all our preparations prove useless. At various intervals the commander presses an electric button and raises and lowers the periscope as quickly as possible, so as to take his own observation without, if possible, being observed himself, for he knows that any injury to the periscope, his most priceless jewel, would, as it were, render the boat blind and rob him of the much-coveted laurel leaves. During these short glimpses the commander only perceives a little sky and the wide round plate of the reflected sea with its dancing waves, while the nervous tension of the expectant crew increases every minute. At last is heard a joyous outcry from the commander, the fellows are coming, and after one quick glance to locate the enemy exactly, the periscope is lowered. Now every heart beats with happy anticipation, and every nerve quivers with excitement. The captain quickly issues his orders for the course to be steered and for the necessary navigation. The officer in charge of the torpedoes receives the command to clear the loaded torpedo for firing, while the captain quietly calculates, first, the relative position of his boat to the enemy's ship according to the course she has taken, secondly, at which point he must aim the torpedo to take surest effect, 
and in the same way as in hunting a hare he withholds the shot to correspond to his victim's gait with lowered periscope he sees nothing that goes on above him on the sea and like a blind man the boat feels its way through the green flood every possible event becomes a subject of conjecture will the fellow continue on the same course has he seen our periscope in the second it was exposed and is he running away from us or on the contrary having seen us will he put on full steam and try to run us down with a fatal death-stroke from his prow now comes the announcement from the torpedo officer the torpedoes are cleared for firing once again the periscope springs for an instant to the surface and then glides back into the protecting body of the turret the captain exclaims we're at them and the news spreads like wildfire through the crew he gives a last rapid order to straighten the course of the boat the torpedo officer announces torpedo ready and the captain after one quick glance through the periscope as it slides back into its sheath immediately shouts fire two a plucky merchantman we were thus in the midst of a strong southwesterly gale lying in wait for our prey at the entrance of the english channel but no ship was to be seen most of them took the northerly course beyond the war zone around the shetland islands and it was not until the next morning north of the scilly isles in the bristol channel that we caught sight behind us of a big steamer running before the wind like ourselves the wind had somewhat fallen and the march sun was shining bright and warm the steamer was heading for cardiff and we judged by her course that she had sailed from some port in south america turning about and breasting the waves we faced the oncoming steamer and signalled to her to stop but hardly had she espied us than she also turned about in the hope of escape she showed no flag to indicate her nationality so surely we had sighted an english vessel even after we had fired a warning shot she tried by rapid and tortuous curves to return to her former course and endeavour thereby to reach her home port meantime she sent up rockets as signals of distress in quick succession to draw the attention of a british patrol ships that must be hovering in the neighbourhood this obliged us to fire a decisive shot and with a loud report our first shell struck the ship close to the captain's bridge instead of resigning himself to his fate the englishman sent up more signals and hoisted the british flag this showed us he was game and the fight began in dead earnest all honour to the plaque of these english captains but how reckless to expose in this manner the lives of their passengers and crew as we shall see in the present instance circling around us he tried to ram us with his prow and we naturally avoided him by also turning in the same direction every time he veered about he offered us his broadside for a shot with well-directioned aim he took advantage of this target and our successful fire gave him full proof of the skill of our gunners the latter had a hard time of it the high seas poured over the low deck and they continually stood up to their necks in the cold salt water they were often dragged off the deck by the great receding waves but as they were tied by strong ropes to the cannons they were able to pull them up again and fortunately no lives were lost on seeing our gunners struggling in the seas our foe hoped to make good his escape but with each telling shot our own fighting blood was aroused and the wild chase continued 
a well-aimed shell tore off the English flagstaff at the stern, but the Union Jack was quickly hoisted again on the foretop. This was also shot down, and a third time the flag flew from a line of the yard of the foretop, but the flag had been raised too hastily, and it hung reversed, with the Union Jack upside down, and in this manner it continued to fly until it sank with the brave ship. The fight had lasted four hours, without our being able to deliver the death-stroke. Several fires had started on the steamer, but the crew had been able to keep them under control. Big holes gaped open in the ship's side, but there were none as yet below the water-line, and the pumps still sufficed to expel the water. It often occurred that in the act of firing the waves choked our cannons, and the shot went hissing through tremendous sheets of water, while we were blinded by a deluge of foam. Of course we were all wet, through and through, but that was of no importance, for we had already been wet for days. It was now essential for us to put an end to this deadly combat, for English torpedo-boat destroyers were hurrying on to the cause of distress of the steamer. Big clouds of smoke against the sky showed they were coming towards us under full steam. The ship was by this time listing so heavily that it was evident we need waste no more of our ammunition, and besides, the appearance of another big steamer on the southern horizon was an enticing inducement to quit the battle scene and seek another victim. We cast a last look on our courageous adversary, who was gradually sinking, and I must add it was the first and last prey whose end we did not have the satisfaction to witness. We had been truly impressed by the captain's brave endurance, notwithstanding his lack of wisdom, and we knew that the men of war were coming to his rescue. We read in the papers, on our return to a German port, that the Vosges had sunk soon after we had departed, and what remained of the passengers and crew were picked up by the English ships. End of section 65. This recording is in the public domain.